Welcome to the OT lifestyle movement. This is for the occupational therapy visionaries and the ones who see things differently. We're moving our profession forward through living and leading a truly holistic lifestyle. Hey, hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the OT lifestyle movement podcast. I'm Rhiannon Crisp, occupational therapist, producer of the film Finding Me in OT, and founder of otlifestylemovement.com. Today, we are talking all about mental health challenges and a path to resilience. And we are speaking with Liz Grace. Liz is a first-time author of her book titled Resilient. At 17, Liz's world collapsed into a place of mental illness and revolving hospital doors. It took a strong family to help her survive to university life where she excelled. But before she could start her career as an occupational therapist, schizoaffective disorder rears to threaten all that she has worked towards. Liz Grace is an occupational therapist in recovery from schizoaffective disorder who lives with the daily challenges of profound hearing loss. Starting at the age of 16, She gradually lost her hearing, learned American Sign Language in university, and at the age of 26, was implanted with bilateral cochlear implants. Liz lives in southern western Ontario, Canada, with her hearing dog and works in community home care. Welcome, Liz. Thank you for having me. Awesome to have you here. I have read your book, Resilient, and it is such an incredible life story that you share with us on such a personal, deep level. And so I am, I feel very honored that you are coming on here today to share with us so openly um, about some really, really raw and vulnerable parts of your life so that we can learn um, really to become better therapists and uh, really think about how we show up in our daily work with the people that we're working with. So thank you. Oh, you're, you're welcome. I'm excited to, to share what I can. Yeah. Well, we always rewind the clock, Liz, um, but we're going to rewind a little bit back a lot further with you because your journey and your story, there's so much to share. And I think it really provides the context uh, for how everything in your life unfolded and how you're doing the work that you're doing today. Um, You have a truly fascinating story. Um, So let's go back as far as you'd like. Maybe I know at this in in the book Resilient, you, you sort of start at the age of 10. So maybe if you wanted to sort of start there and what happened in your life and um, everything through your mental health challenges and um, go from there. Yep. So uh, my life was pretty normal up until I was 10. Uh, My family, you know, we were fine. My mom uh, got sick though. She had breast cancer and she died from that just before I turned uh, 10 years old. So that kind of, uh, well, was a, you know a big impact on my life, um, as you can imagine. So my grandparents stepped in and really helped out my father, um, and we, as a family, just moved on and did what we could. 
Um, when I was 17, my dad uh, decided that he was going to remarry um, and uh, unfortunately didn't tell me that he was even dating anyone. So that was a real shock to me and that kind of prompted my spiral downwards. Uh, when I was 17, I was between 17 and 18, I was hospitalized five times for mental health concerns, um, always against my involuntarily against my will. Um, and it, it was a very trying time. Uh, my father kicked me out of the house. My grandparents took me in, nursed me back to health. I don't want to give too much away from the story, but it was uh, a very difficult, difficult time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so did, did you want to go into your mental health journey and you know what that looked like for you because I know that in the book you describe schizoaffective disorder and yeah. to those occupational therapists who are listening in who don't know what it means can you share with us what what it is yeah So when I was in my teens, I was just diagnosed with depression. Um, They didn't believe that I was actually sick. They would just tell me that I was making it up. And uh, so it wasn't until later when I had my, you know, my second sort of round of breakdowns that they realized that, hey, this is actually more than that. And initially they diagnosed it as bipolar, um, bipolar one. And then uh, later on, they realized it was schizoaffective disorder. And for people who don't know what that means, it basically is a combination of bipolar disorder one with all the mood swings and the mania and the depression with uh, an element of schizophrenia. So delusions and negative symptoms and positive symptoms. And um, for I guess if you're not sure what that means, it means like the, the cognitive and the lack of um, facial expression and, you know, monotone voice and difficulty thinking as well as the delusions and uh, psychosis and um, hallucinations. So that, that when that kind of came, became clear, that really cleared up the diagnosis and allowed, allowed me to be treated properly. And so that's what allowed me to function as well as I have. Mm. What was the treatment for it? I went through a whole bunch of different treatments, but it was um, mostly just like medication. Mm -hmm. So uh, medications to control the um, schizophrenia side and the mood disorder, like the mania especially. Um, And then working, I did a lot of work myself um, on learning how to manage my mood disorder. Um, there's a couple of really good workbooks out um, on Amazon that were very, very helpful. Um, I did CBT. I did a couple, a little bit of DBT. Um, I have a, I have a case manager now and I have a psychotherapist. So I have someone to talk to and someone to help monitor. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's not a, a set and done thing. It's constantly being monitored by my psychiatrist and my, my whole support team really. Mm. Did you have an occupational therapist throughout your um, journey? I did when I was in the hospital. So 
one of my for my first like manic episode i had an occupational therapist and uh i was really like short tempered at that time and we were doing cooking something i don't even remember what it was but i was trying to cut butter and of course being in the hospital you don't have an actual knife and so i was trying to slice this butter and my fake knife slipped and I started swearing my head off and like I'm not a swearing person but that was the mania right like that was the the mood of going on in my head and so she told me to go kind of self-regulate using the OT terms because at that point I had just graduated from OT school and sent me on my way in the hall and I was able to kind of self-regulate and get back to it and then um, in one of the day programs I did have an occupational therapist um, but for the most part, I feel like I OT'd myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what does that look like? OT'd yourself? Um, really like breaking everything down into the small parts. I'm really good at like the whole task analysis part of the OT world. So breaking it down and being like, okay, what's happening? What's going on? What do I need to change? What can I change? What can I not change? Um, let's look at this. Like I've always had really good insight and that has really helped me. Um, there's been only a couple times where I didn't really have the insight. Uh, and I think, so I think that's been really helpful as well. Mm. And so what were your self-regulation tools when something, um, when you're in that state and something didn't go the right way or something unexpected came up, what, what tools helped you to move through those emotions? Uh, when it's in the hospital, I walk. So I will walk from the moment I get up in the morning till the morning the nurses make me go to bed. And the nurses have previously told me that they can tell when something is upsetting me or, you know, if there's, you know, sounds going on in my brain just by the, I guess, the cadence with which I walk. Um, so that for me, just that movement and repetitiveness is very um, soothing. Uh, the last time I was in the hospital, I actually walked so much that a According to my step counter, I walked more than a marathon in a day and uh, I hurt my ankle because I was putting so much stress on it. So they had to put me on crutches for a couple of days, um, but I was still pacing the halls. But um, and that's also that can be like a side effect of medication and the disorder itself, just this like restlessness and needing to move. Yeah. So that's um, one thing for me in the hospital. And then outside of the hospital, I think. My dog, for one, is great for the self-regulation. With her, I'll get out and I'll get out into the fresh air and I'll walk and I'll have something to focus on. And, you know, everything from the the fresh air to the smell of dog poop, right? It all grounds you. Um, And it it just, that just helps kind of bring me back to where I need to be, I think. Mm, Yeah. So can you... Give us a bit of an insight and a visual of how schizoaffective disorder has impacted your life. So your relationships, work, and of course, you know, from the OT lens, like your everyday activities. So the first thing that comes to mind is that I have this kind of like a radio on in my head that comes from like behind me and to the left. And with the medications, it's quiet enough now that for the most part, I can ignore it. Um, and it's just like somebody with a TV on in the other room. Um, but when that gets louder, that can get really impactful because then I can't focus on anything. 
Um, or if I'm having, you know, a bad day, then the cognitive symptoms can come back. So I can't focus. Um, I have a hard time, you know, like um, completing any of my work or, you know, writing emails or, you know, writing assessments or anything like that. So I think my current job is very accommodating of that, which is very helpful and that I can set my own schedule. So if I'm having a day like that, I can change what I'm doing to be less cognitive like intense and then do those on a, a different day. So, you know, one day I can be just, you know, figuring out my filing my paperwork and then another day I'll be writing an assessment because those are different levels of cognitive load for me, I guess. Mm. And and when you go through these, like how often is it that you go through like a manic period or like these um yeah, I, I suppose this isn't my area of expertise either. Um, but how often and what's the frequency like and what's the intensity like and how is it then that that is impacting? Does it impact on your yeah. work? What does that look like? Do you need to take time off when you're experiencing this? So there's a couple different answers to that. So the day-to-day -day is little swings. So cognitively maybe I can focus better than I can one day than the other um maybe you know I'm more fatigued one day than the other um in terms of like mania and depression those are things that come across weeks and months for the most part so things will build 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 into mania or build 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 down into a deep depression I haven't had an, an issue with depression for a couple years now the last time I had a big manic episode um, was uh, in 2022, so last year, um, when I had to take a bunch of time off work and I was hospitalized. Um, and I, I do go through that in the book um, about uh, the, the treatment that I experienced there. And, and you know, it's, it's amazing in some ways how it's changed from when I was 17 and not changed when I was 17. So How so? How so? Do you mean the treatment in the hospital? Yeah, so like I found the nurses were much, much more um, empathetic this time, the last time, than they were when I was 17, when the whole staff was just telling me that I wasn't sick and I was making it up for attention. Um, whereas now they actually, this time they actually were like, yes, we realize you're sick, we understand you're sick. Um, Unfortunately, they decided that I needed to be put into seclusion um, simply because I was pacing the halls and kind of like knocking on the walls. But they uh, said that I was scaring the geriatric patients with Alzheimer's. So instead of telling me to go to my room, they decided that I needed to put into be put into seclusion. And I think that their real rational for that was that they thought that it would be calming to have the decreased sensory input but when you're doing that to person who hears voices and a person who is also deaf that is like the worst thing that you can do is to remove sensory input from them because now you've got nothing to distract you from what's going on in your head and with the deafness you're already lacking that sensory information so being put in a room and the lights turned you know halfway to dim it's it's just the only way I could cope with it was to tell myself to play dead. And I did. I lay on the mattress and I told myself, just play dead. 
just they were playing graveyard that's the kid we used to play the the game we used to play as kids and i did that for 24 hours and uh, i guess probably dissociation would probably be an accurate descriptor of that and that's the only way i could get through and you think you know that's that's what the staff thought was going to help me like how how did you rationalize that mm. um but that's that's what they did and mm. uh it's uh, unfortunately very similar to what they did when i was 17 what's the collaborative you know process here and partnership you know as occupational therapists we are we're taught to work with work with the people um you know that we're caring for and not you know we're not above them and we need to listen to their story and to empathize and to really understand their life and their journey did you ever really feel heard in the hospital did you feel seen did you feel like your needs were being met from your perspective not from the perspective of what professionals thought were best for you there were times um that i did for example one time i was uh, i think it was the second or third day on the unit and i would just kind of clued into the fact that i had admitted myself and realized i didn't want to be there um, my mania was at like as high as it was getting it was going to get and so i just decided that i was going to leave and they um were trying to stop me and they you know how they have the the card swipes well i actually pulled that off the wall trying to think that you know oh, i'll be able to get the wires like they do in the movies and you know open the doors um and so they got me kind of sat on the ground and I had all these nurses around me trying to like give me medication and talk to me and whatever. And like, I was way beyond, you know, being spoken to at that point. And it was actually the social worker who got uh, down at my level. She crouched down to my level and she got me in the eyes. Like she was on the other side of the hall. And I don't even remember what she said actually, but, just her getting down at that level and getting my eye contact and kind of making that connection with me helped me to ground myself enough to be able to say, okay, give me the medication. Mm. And then the medication, you know, put me to sleep for, I don't know, a couple hours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, there was another time mm. um, when it was probably about three or four in the morning and I just was anxious the whole time and I was pacing the halls and one of the nurses um, just stood in the hall and talked with me for like an hour, just reassuring me that, yes, I was supposed to be here. Yes, I was fine. Yes, I was getting the treatment. You know, no, I don't need to leave so someone else can have my spot because I had this thing where I thought, you know, I didn't deserve to be there. Somebody else needed the spot more than I do, which looking back, like I was I was very, very manic. I needed to be there. but. Um, I that was just I needed that constant reassurance and she did that for an hour and that's what I needed at that moment more than any medication she could have given me mm. and that was that was just awesome yeah and it reminds me of that old saying that it doesn't matter what they say it matters how you make them feel um so that yeah. social worker that came to your level and that just held that space for you was there in that present moment and not that authoritarian style this is what you have to do it's like here i'm meeting you i'm meeting you here like we're in this together mm -hmm. 
and so yeah, with that nurse. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. They're beautiful stories. And I think it's such a reminder for us as occupational therapists as well um, to hold that space to develop this therapeutic relationship because when we do obviously that trust builds like that trust and that respect that you have for that person that's working with you builds so you're more likely to um receive the help that you need without thinking that it is uh coming from like without feeling intimidated and something that you have to do Mm -hmm. having choice working together yeah absolutely um have you felt like there there's been any stigma or misunderstandings around schizoaffective disorder or mental health illness in general um for you and how have you navigated this because i I still feel like we have such a long way to go and there still is like so much you know misunderstandings yeah the first thing that i think a lot of people don't realize is that you can recover from schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. There are organizations online in the States that are all about people who recover. Um, and there are, one of them I know is actually putting out a book soon, but um, the, the, uh, the idea that somebody can be so psychotic and they, and that they can recover, people just don't, make that connection but I mean I literally was that person and here I am I'm an OT right like I have a master's degree uh I work full-time um and so I think that there's a lot of people who don't realize that that's possible and going along with that there's a lot of people patients myself included who are afraid of the people who think that. So I know for me, one of my biggest worries in putting out the book was, you know, what are, what are my colleagues going to think of me? What are the other people like going to think of me? Initially, I didn't tell anybody locally about the book because I didn't want them to read it because I was afraid of what, how their, their, you know, thoughts of me were going to change. And slowly I let, you know, a few people read it and realize that that was not their reaction. And so now I'm a lot more open with letting people know that, you know, hey, I wrote this book. Um, It's about mental illness. Um, And yes, hey, I I have mental illness. Um, But it was, it would have been really easy to just stay stuck in that idea that people don't want, or or people, people think that I'm going to be this for lack of a better word, crazy person, you know, and that I shouldn't be working in healthcare or anything like that. And that's, that's not the reaction that I got, which I was very thankful for. Mm. And so what area are you working in now? Do you work with people who have mental health challenges and shine your light on, you know, with, with your lived experience, be able to come in and, um, you know, support other people on their healing journey? I do not. Um, I work in home care, so mostly like equipment and um, falls prevention, home safety, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, I do find that I think it would be very difficult for me to work in mental health because it would be a constant reminder of the trauma that I went through. Mm. And I try to 
use my experience to empathize with my clients, even if they were going going through something different. And I think that I generally am the kind of person who probably because of my experiences will believe that people can do it. You know, I don't see them capped. I see that, you know, if you want to do it, let's find a way for you to do it. Mm. And if you don't want to do it, then that's fine. What's important to you. And I think that's really big in the whole OT world is not putting our values on people, but making sure that they are focusing on what's important to them. Mm. Mm. And this infinite potential, like everyone has this untapped potential that we can help tap into with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing. Um, in the book, I know you talk a lot about like delusions and this is something that you have mentioned. I'd love it if you could describe like what this feels like for you and how would you explain it to someone who doesn't understand or who hasn't experienced delusions so we can help better get an insight into this? I think the best way to describe it is that it's real. It's not a delusion to me. If I tell you to tell me what color the sky is and you say blue and I say, no, you're wrong, it's red. You're going to be like, well, no, it's blue. I can see it's blue. And that to you is real, whether or not I agree with you, it's still real in your world. And I think that that's important for people to understand that, you know, fighting with somebody over something might not be the best route to do to get through to them right maybe you don't need to agree with them that the sky is blue but you can find out well why is it important for you that the sky is blue or you know why are there birds flying in the blue sky or whatever um but i think yeah mm. so so if if you're experiencing a delusion for example what would you what would your hope be for the health professional working with you to say and you're saying one thing and it may not be the reality, but it, it's your lived, re it's your reality. This is your perception of what's going on. How, like, do we validate? Do we just ask questions and be there and, and support? Or like, what, what does that interaction look like? I think acknowledge that mm -hmm. I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing without being condescending. Um, I think it's can be easy to, to be condescending if you're thinking oh well this person's you know wrong they're you know I know that they're they're not with in reality but to them that's their reality so um, acknowledging that that's their reality and you know you can reorient where possible I mean I'm not a mental health professional so I don't know what yeah, the latest no, just from your um, is, I but... mean yeah and, and so yeah disclosure to everyone listening to this this isn't from the research this is from the lived experience so I'm just asking like from your perspective in that yeah. time like what you would have hoped for yeah. or what you would have liked hmm. I would think acknowledgement of what I'm experiencing maybe some redirection to things that are you know grounding um, that I enjoy that maybe get me out of that state of anxiety if that's what I'm experiencing. Um, sometimes the delusions come with the mania and that you're really high and grandiose and you think that you're on top of the world and you're the best at something. So it's not necessarily always that the delusion is, you know, bad for say or negative, but it's still unrealistic. It's not really the, the reality. 
Mm-hmm. So I think um, just acknowledgement, really. I guess that's 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 if I could say one thing, it would be acknowledge that yes, I I understand that you are experiencing this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a genuine way, in a way that's not condescending, yes. like you said. Yeah, and yeah. also that redirection. So what I also um, took from that is redirection to a meaningful, valued occupation, um, which yeah. is something that we do so well. Absolutely. Can you share any specific experiences of delusions that you've had? Yeah. Um, so there was one time in the hospital where I thought a nurse had killed a patient. And that was very scary because I was a patient on that same ward. Um, and unfortunately, the staff there really didn't acknowledge that I had this fear or that I thought that I saw what I what I saw um and so for a couple of days while that delusion was sitting there before the medications kicked in you know I I didn't really get any support and I think that that was an example of where you know the staff could have acknowledged what I was going through and maybe redirected me to you know another meaningful activity that's getting me out of my head of this idea that you know, a nurse killed a patient kind of thing. Mm, mm. Because no one could have talked you out of that. No. No. Because in my mind, I saw him kill her. And there was that was real, right? Like, to me, that was real. There was no if and or buts about it. It doesn't matter, you know, that the patient had the door closed and, and, and stuff, right? Like, that, that was real in my head. And so now it sounds like though your perception has changed and your mind now sees that that wasn't the truth or what actually happened in reality. When, how do you you come out of a delusion? How does that transition to when you sort of go, oh, that's, that's not what happened. How does, how does that work? I think for different people, it happens differently for me. It's kind of just I wake up and I realize that, you know, oh, that wasn't true. Mm. Um, it's it's not necessarily like a, a big life changing aha eureka moment. For me, I just I go to bed one day thinking something and I wake up the next day and I realize that that probably wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you experience many delusions? No, mm-hmm. no. Uh, I think in all the time that I've been sick, I can think of maybe three examples mm-hmm. and that's it. And how do you, how do you distinguish between thoughts that may be delusional and thoughts that are grounded in reality? Like how do you, cause I can imagine that could be very difficult to know when your mind's, um, you know, telling you something, this is the truth. Like how do how do you trust then your mind? So the short answer to that is you don't know. Mm. You don't. You're not aware. It's everything is reality. That is real. There's no questioning. There's no reason to question it. Um, and I think that's where having a support team that you trust is imperative because I know if my case manager comes to me and says, uh, "You know, the sky is actually red. It's not blue." 
and I know that I trust you. So, okay, this guy must actually be red because you're not going to tell me it's red if it's actually blue. I, I trust you. Mm-hmm. And having that trusted, supportive support team, I think makes a huge difference. Mm. Yeah. And I think it all comes back to, again, as an occupational therapist, being authentic, being trustworthy, developing that rapport, that respect, that connection with the people that we're working with. So, so we can really support that healing journey because without that, it it does put a massive roadblock. Um, between you and your health and your well-being yeah definitely Mm. in the book you talk a few times about restraint in the hospital Um, can you give us some insights into these experiences and how it felt for you okay think of the scariest moment you've ever been through times by 100 and then times it by a million. It is absolutely terrifying. Even if you're psychotic, you're still aware that it's happening. And a lot of the time for me, it was always like, but if you would just help me calm down, I wouldn't need to be restrained. And even that you know, need to be restrained is, is not accurate because I never did really. Right. Like what they needed to do was to, you know, prevent anything from happening. Um, But basically restrained. What what are the reasons? um, Mostly it was that I was trying to leave. So I would stand next to the door when I was 17 and try to leave because I didn't want to be there. And then when they would basically try to stop me then I would say like no like I'm getting out of here and have a meltdown and then that was that was that they their solution to that was put you in restraints and wait until you fought out of it until you've given up um, until you have no reason left to fight and then we'll let you out slowly yeah and it's 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 terrorizing like um you're already in a state where you're distressed. Suddenly there's security, there's nurses, they're holding on to you, they're probably pinning you to the floor. Um, and you're just like, just like let go of me. I'm like, just just let go of me. I don't I don't need you to be holding me. But every time I try to get them to let away from me, they just hold tighter. Right? And it's not that I'm hurting myself or hurting anyone they just need to control somehow is my theory Um, but uh, it's terrifying and I think anybody who works in mental health needs to understand that that should be like banned (laughs) I mean I can't I really cannot think of almost any reason why a mechanical restraint is the answer Mm-hmm. But anyway, I'm sure other people would disagree with me, but uh, that's my lived experience well, it, anyway. It, 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 you know, it comes back to, for me, I just think of just humanity. Like how do we want to treat other people? Like how can we support this person in a way that's less restrictive and harmful? 
um, and terrorizing by the sounds of it. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's really disgusting, and um, particularly, you know, you were wanting to get out of a place that was very scary um, for you, and to be put in this situation that amplified all the feelings and all the negative emotions and thoughts, and um, really made the situation so much worse than what it could have been yeah. had we taken a humanistic, empathetic approach. Um, I think also, for example, when I was 17, and according to my medical record, they restrained 13 times in the hospital. Like, that's who who didn't, like, why didn't somebody think, like, what we're doing is not working, right? Obviously, we're missing something. Uh, like, who? I, it just boggles my mind that that was the solution that was come up with. And so a restraint looks like the security guards or the nurses holding down, I think you said in the book, like your, your wrists and your ankles and, and pinning you down to the ground or wherever you are. Is that right? And how long does that last for? And are you fighting against this actively or do you just give in to it and, and let go? So if you're lucky, they only hold you to the floor. Um, in most cases, they'll put you on a bed in four point restraints and leave you there to fight until you give in. Um, if you're lucky, they might give you medication, which is usually a big needle in your bum to knock you out. And it, then you wake up and, and, you know, hopefully, hopefully you wake up and hopefully it's over. And if you're lucky, somebody will kind of de, um, de deconstruct what happened with you. But a lot of the time they don't, there's, just moving on I'm like okay don't do it again mm. so mm. it feels like such a backwards way of doing things um and and, and I think the that... research shows, like I don't understand it like because the research obviously shows that we need to be taking a very different approach to this I think it very much depends by the hospital mm. uh, I know in one of the hospitals I talk about in my book the lady who I'm pretty sure had schizophrenia, who they used to restrain all the time because she was annoying. Like she wasn't hurting anyone. And she would sit in her room tied up and scream. And they just left her for hours. And it's just, I, I still shudder when I think about it because my, my door was just down the hall. And, um, but then like the last hospitalization I, I went in, they didn't, do any restraints as far as I could see they didn't restrain me other than putting me in the seclusion room um it uh I, I mean I guess I never really thought about being thankful for being in the seclusion room but I guess given the choice that would be probably the better choice mm -hmm. um in the book you also you talk Quite a lot about self-harm and I know this is a very sensitive topic um, so only if you feel comfortable to talk about it um, you know we can dive into it a little bit um, mm -hmm. but I was wondering try. yeah if you were open to sharing any of your experiences with self-harm so I started self-harming when I was in about grade four um, and it was mostly just like giving myself bruises. So nobody really realized what it was because I was an active child. 
I wasn't until I got to be a teenager that I started like actual cutting. Um, and for me, it was a way to express emotion because I didn't know how to otherwise. So I didn't know how to cope with my emotions that were going through my head and my mind and my body. Um, that was the only outlet that I had that I knew. And once I learned other strategies to cope with those, I was lucky enough lucky enough to be able to um, stop doing that. And, you know, I haven't done that since I was a teenager. Um, but uh, every now and then, you know, every couple of years, I'll get that urge to be like, oh, and I have to stop and think, okay, what what's going on here? Let's break it down and figure out why I feel that way, because that's not something that I'm going to do again. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that a lot of teens actually go through. Again, mental health, um, it's not something that I specialize in or, or I work in that area. Um, but I do know it's something that's quite common um, for that mm-hmm. teen population who do have a lot of big emotions and are going through a lot of challenging times, just navigating life. It's hard. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons why people do it Mm -hmm. and I know I've heard previously uh, like you know in in, in the movies and stuff saying that you know oh they're doing it for attention and that just bothers me because every kind of behavior is a form of communication so People don't cut themselves because they want attention. They cut themselves because something's hurting, because they need a reason to. Maybe maybe whatever's going on looks like them wanting attention to you, but there's a reason why. That's I mean, from my experience, I guess that's that's what what I know. And and how could someone have helped if they had have identified that you were self-harming or cutting? Like what could have been the best support for you at that time? Have you reflected on that at all in this big book writing journey and sort of thought, oh, if I had have had someone who, you know, because a lot of the times it does come back to relationships, you know, you can't do it alone. Um, and so what might look like mm-hmm. attention is is you know is your own cry out for help and and you know is it is it um you said to feel something like you you were cutting to feel emotions emotion right Mm. I think it's easy to say I would love for people to say oh come talk to me you know when you're feeling like that come talk to me um, but and I did have teachers say that right once they realized what was happening I did have people say that what they didn't understand was that it was happening 24 7 it was not oh I can go talk to you and five minutes later I'm going to feel better because I'm going to go talk to you and I'm going to need to talk for an hour and then I'm going to move on to the next person who will listen to me because I still feel that way and it's not me wanting attention because I'm going from person to person if I'm lucky enough to have people who will say that they'll listen to me it's things are wrong in my head and I need help and I I wish I wish I had an answer Mm. I wish I had an answer 
what sort of emotions were you feeling at that stage in your life? What was going on? I think the biggest one was grief. I didn't, I hadn't grieved my mom's death. So then when my dad got, was getting remarried and brought a woman into his life, it was suddenly like my whole life was upside down. And now suddenly I was faced with the fact that my mom had died and things were changing. And here I am, a 17-year-old full of hormones and things were just not, not good at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, how has this whole experience in your life journey really how has it shaped the therapist, the occupational therapist that you are today? I think I am much more empathetic than I would have been without that. Um, I think I have a strong belief in people that they can achieve what they want to achieve. It might be difficult and maybe they're not going to do it the same way somebody else would. But I think I have that inborn belief that people can do it and that you know I can help them and we can get there if that's something that they want to do Mm. Mm. love that and I think for everyone every OT listening to this I think you know we are all human we're not robots we have all gone through our own shit in life and um, I think we can tap into that when we are supporting someone else on their life journey and knowing that they're going through their own challenges. Um, and I think it really supports the therapeutic use of self, like how we show up and how we be with another person. Um, I'm interested too to know how you came across OT. How did you find OT or how did OT find you? Absolutely nothing related to mental health. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually was volunteering in a class for students with special needs in my high school. And an OT came in with an adapted cutting board for one of the girls. And I had always been like a problem solver all my life. And so she was telling me about how she got to come up with all these creative solutions to problems. And I remember this light bulb going off in my head thinking, I can get paid to do that? <laughs> and that was that was it. I was sold on OT. I was like grade 10. And... Uh, <laughs> So nothing to do with mental yeah, health or yeah. any of my previous mental health experiences at all. <laughs> Interesting. That's the way it happened. Yeah, yeah, amazing. We all have our own um, story to tell for that one. Um, I also want to dive into your hearing loss. Um, so you have profound hearing loss. I'd love to know sort of your journey and when that started, how it started, how you felt um, through throughout this experience. Um, and share maybe how it sort of shaped your life as well. So first question, how it happened. So uh, I I think I started losing it when I was about 16. Um, when I was really young, my mom took me for a, a hearing test. And I believe the audiologist said, oh, she's yelling because she's competing with her siblings because I had three siblings. And so that was kind of left at what it was. And my mom got sick and nobody really followed up with it. So whether or not I had hearing loss at that point, I have no idea. Um, But when I was 16, I was working as a camp counselor and we were waiting for the kids to come back from another section of camp. And we were all sitting around this table having lunch. And I remember looking around and thinking that I couldn't 
hear and understand everybody. And just kind of thinking, huh, oh, you know, that that's that's weird. But I was 16 and I was not about to be made any different than anybody else. So I just kept my mouth shut and listened harder, basically. Um, and it wasn't until I was in college, uh, first year college, that I realized that I'm sitting at the front of the like the front of the room and I still can't hear the professor. And so that to me was the first time that I went and got my hearing actually tested and they said, yeah, you got, you know, a mild hearing loss. Here's some hearing aids. I eventually got an, what's called an FM system, which is like a remote microphone. Um, and uh, so that that went on and my hearing kept progressing. And I'm almost, I, I say I'm almost lucky that it happened the way that it did. Because I did two years of college um, as a, you know, mildly hard of hearing person. Then I went to university, and by that point, my hearing had dropped more. So everybody for four years of university knew me as, you know, a much more hard of hearing person. Towards the end, I was learning sign language. And so that was kind of like what everybody knew me as. So there, there was no awkward situation where, you know, people walk up to you and you're like, oh, what happened to you? Like that that never happened. And then I went into my master's of OT. And again, it was a whole new set of people. So nobody knew me as anything other than the deaf girl, which I mean, I, I know it was more than the deaf girl, but I was the one with the ASL interpreters at the front of the class. And I was the reason why we had captions on our videos. And I was the reason why there was a note taker and, and all that. Um, so it, uh, I guess I was lucky that it happened the way that it did. So I didn't have as much of an emotional response as I think I would have had otherwise, because I didn't have people reacting to me with that um like sorry for you what happened to you kind of reaction because I wasn't getting that so I could be strong the whole time mm. and I think that, that goes back to just my personality I'm very much a strong you know resilient person which is where the name of the book comes from um and everybody who reads the book turns around and says yep that's a good good name for the book <laughs> so absolutely I can attest to that um, and so what's your hearing like now with your cochlear implants in? Oh, right. I, I forgot that whole part. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, right as I was finishing my master's, I got cochlear implants. And uh, I had to completely learn how to hear again. So uh, the sound, a lot of people ask, well, what's it it's like? So it's kind of when they turn it on, it's beeps. It's just electronic beeps. And I have to match the beeps with what I remember the sound to be like. So um, one of the examples I think I gave in the book was I was in the kitchen and I was hearing all these beeps and I couldn't figure out what it was until I realized that it was every time I closed the cupboard, that beep happened. And it was the metal latch in the cupboard that was beeping. And as soon as I realized that, it sounded in my brain like it should. And I think it's important to note that that really only happened because I had the auditory memories, right? Like that's not going to happen to someone who's never heard a sound before. And I have a very young brain, so it's very plastic. It learns very quickly. Um, so that's not going to happen with somebody who's, you know, 80 or 90 years old who gets implanted. But for me, I was lucky that that was. So whether it was cupboard doors or uh, hearing crickets outside, that was a really interesting one because it was in August the summer evening and for us that means it's warm and humid and the crickets are out 
And I was walking down the rail trail, which is like a, just a pathway. And I heard, I was hearing all these beeps around and I, I just couldn't figure out what was making all these beeps because like, you know, there's, there's no cars or anything. And then I realized it was crickets. And as soon as I realized it was crickets, then it sounded like crickets to me. Wow. Does the cricket sound different to the cupboard door? Like, can you, like, if you closed your eyes, could you distinguish which was which if you didn't know which context or environment you're in? Or Now I can. Was- Back then, I wouldn't have been able to. So my brain had to learn how to hear again. So it was receiving the information from the implants, but my brain had to figure out what to do with that information. So it took me, I mean, I've had them almost 10 years now. So now I hear quite well with them, not perfectly but I do hear quite well with them um and it's it's just amazing right and I mean I still sign I still have deaf friends I still sign I still love that I can sign um but I also love that I can also you know that I can hear too Mm -hmm. well I think the the title of the book absolutely sums up like your life's journey so far like from losing your mom at such a young age to going through the the hearing loss learning sign getting cochlear implants through the whole mental health journey that you went on um, the hospitalizations and everything that you have to overcome in your everyday life is just a testament to who you are as a person Liz like it's incredible um, and it's a beautiful book it's it, it is raw it's real it's honest um, it's it's so open um, and I, I want to ask a few questions about the book because yeah, mm-hmm. I, I find it so interesting and fascinating um, and, and the fact that you have been able to summon the courage to put forward to the world such such a um honest telling of your story what what was the inspiration behind writing the book so I had a lot of anxiety with the job that I was doing before and so I started seeing a therapist and at that point nobody knew my story not a single person in the world knew my whole story And so I told her over multiple visits, many of them, uh, we were just kind of making up a timeline of everything that had happened so we could figure out where to start. And I finally got through the timeline and she said, you know, this is a story that people would benefit from hearing. Um, And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever, right? Like, sure. And then um, I started talking to her more and we kind of joked that, oh, I should write a book, you know, that that would be interesting. And then I was kind of a little hypomanic for a couple of weeks. And so to sort out what was going on in my brain, I decided I would write them. You know, I would journal, kind of write them down. And once I started doing that, it kept going. And then I started, you know, I think I got to about 23,000 words in uh, the first 24 hours that I wrote because oh I was manic goodness. and that's like an insane amount right like um but when I got to 30,000 and I was like oh well maybe I can actually make this into a book and I started sending it to people and getting good feedback from it and then I was like oh okay and so then it grew and it grew and it was edited and it grew and it got to about 67,000 words and um now it's that's the book that we have and yeah. 
it was definitely hard to be honest the whole time and to remember that people didn't want to read a therapy session. Mm. People wanted to read a book. And so I had to make sure that the book itself was not a therapy session. It was not me venting. It was not me complaining. It was not me too much processing. I mean, there's some processing in there, but um, making sure that it's something that people want to read and that it's, you know, a benefit to them, that they can take something away from it. Mm. What do you hope that people take away from the book? I guess there's a couple things. So the first one is not to put limits on your patients. Um, you never know what people are going to be able to achieve. And just because somebody's really sick right now doesn't mean they can't get better. Um, I also think that I want people to know that, you know, uh, mental health or behaviors, whatever you want to call it, is not for attention. There's a reason behind it. And just calling something that being attention seeking is not helping the situation. Um, and then I think I want people to know that you can go through a lot in life and you can still benefit other people. You can you can do what you want to do. So I think that the book shows that quite a bit, I would think. Mm. Absolutely. And one of the lines that you put in at the end of the book there said, be the person who cares, be the person yeah. who makes a difference. And absolutely, I thought that was just such a beautiful way to close because it reminds us, you know, particularly as occupational therapists, because that's who's listening in here today, that, you know, be that person who takes the time to care, who takes the time to just sit and be with the other person putting down your agenda, putting down all the things on your to-do list and the things that you think are most important and that you've prioritized as most important, but actually listening um, to the other person, whether that is through what they're saying or listening um, to their body language, listening to um, every part of them and working out where they're at on their journey and how you can support them to get to wherever it is that they want and need to go. And and that that is what makes the difference. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, did you have any concerns before publishing the book? Did you? Oh, were, yeah. Were you, <laughs> um, tell me about that. Um, I think my biggest concern, and it's still kind of there, is that the book will get out there and... I won't be able to work as an OT anymore because for whatever reason, stigma, whatever have you, I'll be told no. And I realize that that's not a realistic fear. And I realize that now, but it's still kind of there, right? Like it's still, it's, I'm still afraid of what other people will think. And I'm trying to get over the idea of what it matters, what other people think, because it doesn't matter what other people think. It matters what I think. Um, so I think that was probably the biggest thing is I was afraid, like, you know, who's going to see this book and what are they going to think of me? But, uh, I think in the other side of it was, I was a little bit afraid for my family about what uh, they would think of me. 
So uh, that's one of the reasons why I changed the name on the book. So it's got um, a pen name on it just to protect the privacy of all the people who didn't have a choice whether or not I told my part of their story. Mm-hmm. So, mm. um, you said then getting over what other people think, and I think that I think that's a challenge for everyone in whatever is going on in their life. Like we always think about, oh, what are they going to think of me? What's their perception going to be? And we, I think, and that can block us from so many things. It can block us from being our authentic self. Um, It can block our own spiritual path. And I think that's one of the the biggest things. And I I think it's a muscle that we really develop over time and with courage and strength and support. and people who believe in us sometimes more than what we believe in ourselves. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I, I think it's that's something we all can muster up is just trying to get over what other people think of us. Because at the end of the day, we, we're not going to please everyone, whether we put the book out or not. Like there are going to be people that agree with us or like it or don't like it or there's always going to be something that people will say about any of our actions or anything um, that we do and I'm conscious of that all the time even putting a post out on social media I'm like I read it and I think about you know I have certain people in my mind that I think oh what would they think through their lens what how are they going to interpret this and I think sometimes it can be a good thing because I can think of some of my blind spots and like oh I didn't think of this or you know I can I can reword this or whatever um even on the podcast you know just being mindful of what I say and you know, I think we're constantly, I think, I think there's an element of being too cautious um, that overrides our own authenticity, but it, it can also provide us with um, some insight into maybe some of our blind spots as well. Definitely. Well, we have three rapid fire questions, Liz, to finish off this conversation. Are you ready? <laughs> yep. Okay. All right. In number one, in one sentence, how do you describe OT? So I tell my patients that OT looks at the things that you do every day. So things you need to do, you want to do, and you're expected to do, Um, you know, dressing, bathing, toileting, mobility, self-regulation, all those day-to-day things that occupy your time. Wonderful. Number two, what's one healthy lifestyle habit that listeners can implement today? Take a breath, step back, and reevaluate. Love it. Three-step process. Number three, if you could only offer one piece of advice to OTs listening in right now, what would it be? I think it's going to be that sentence that you picked out earlier. So, um, be the person who cares, be the person who makes a difference, you know, just be that person. Mm, 100%. Awesome, Liz. If OTs out there listening in are ready to read your book after listening to today and want to find out more about your story and your journey, how can they grab a copy? And is there any other spaces that you live where people can find out more about you or anything like that? Just let us know. Yep. So the name of the book is Resilient, um, Surviving My Mental Illness by Liz Grace. 
Uh, it's available on Amazon pretty much worldwide, I think. Uh, or if you email me at lizgraceauthor at gmail.com, I can mail you a signed copy. Uh, I also just got my little um, book award stickers. That, uh, oh, you kind of can see that oh, yeah. there. Oh, wow. Um, so they're really pretty in their embossed. I like them. So I can only do that if you email me because I can't get Amazon to stick stickers to the books. But um, so otherwise, uh, I'm on Facebook for, as Liz Grace Author. That's the best way to get me other than email. Uh, but I would recommend email probably being the, the best way if you read the book and you have a comment or you have a question or you just want to go, oh, my gosh, with me. <laughs> feel free to send me an email and I'll, I'll, I promise I'll respond back to you. Uh, thank you so much, Liz. It was incredible um, having this conversation with you and sharing it. Um, it's some, you know, it's these conversations that I love having a platform such as the OT Lifestyle Movement podcast to share stories and really connect um, connect with others, with other OTs out there who, who need to hear stories like this to support them in potentially their personal life but also on their journey as a better occupational therapist. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's it, guys. I hope this episode resonated with you. But more importantly, I hope it inspires you to take action. If you did enjoy this episode, please share it with your OT besties. And if it feels aligned, give a five-star review on the podcast platform that you're listening on because it really helps us connect with more OTs. If you hang out over on Instagram, come over and say hi. You'll find me at Rhiannon Crisp. We also have a Facebook family that you can come and join and you can find us simply by searching the OT Lifestyle Movement in Facebook. Carpe diem, guys.